All right, as you turn to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, so good to be with you this morning. Uh, Jennifer and I spent a lot of time the last few days talking about all of you um, in North Carolina. It was very good talking to the assessors about us and who we are as a crossing church and uh, as we go through this process of potentially joining the Acts 29 Church Planning Network, and we'll find out in the next few weeks some of the steps that we have to take for us to uh, try and join. One thing we know for sure is we have to have 40 committed adults, and uh, interestingly, just in God's sovereignty over the last couple of months, we've been finalizing a process to take us through covenantal membership that we'll be rolling out this summer that will uh, carry us down that path to get to 40 committed adults. And, um, but there's other things that we've got to walk through as, as a leadership team um, that, that we'll deal with. One thing that we always come away with whenever we hang out with the Acts 29 family or the Summit family or the Soma family is uh, actually a couple of things. Number one, they are our biggest fans for what God has done, is doing, and wants to do in the city of Monroe. Like, they're our biggest cheerleaders. Uh, whenever we meet with these guys, they're uh, che- everything that, that God's doing graciously, all the good stuff, they're just cheering it on. I mean, we do have hard, honest, difficult conversations about things that aren't showing up, uh, that we're not doing a good job at, things that, that we see as leaders and we want to fix, we want to improve. But beyond those hard, necessary conversations that we need to have, because we all have blind spots, right? And if any church gets hard conversations about blind spots, it should be us, right? Because in DNA groups, those are conversations that are supposed to be happening every week. You know, here's what I see that's good. Here's where I think you need to believe the gospel. And so we're, we're used to that kind of language and want that kind of uh, assessment happening. But, but more than helping us identify and walk through blind spots, they are overwhelmingly fans and cheerleaders of what God is doing in the city of Monroe through us and in us. So yes, two years ago we started three missional communities. And yes, two years later we have three missional communities. But we have three missional communities, right? We don't have none or one or two. We have to still have three missional communities. And, and yes, we have this number of people and not that number of people in our Sunday worship gathering. But we have this number of people Praise God. It could be this number of people, you know, much smaller. And so don't, don't neglect the things that, that God has done because we get frustrated about the things we want him to do. Celebrate and be grateful for the things God is doing and has done in the Crossing Church. And they were just kind of wind behind ourselves. And, uh, you know, I wish I could just have folded you all up, put you in my pocket and taken you there and let you hear these things. Maybe I could have recorded it secretly. But I want to pass as much of that along to you as I can. Uh, Be encouraged, Crossing Family. God has not called us to do a fast church growth plant model. Everybody there recognized that. And other people there were doing what we're doing. And someone recognizes that. But God has called us to be a family of servant missionaries that are intentional about saturating our city with the gospel to make disciples and make disciples to to plant churches that plant churches for the glory of Christ and for the enjoyment of Christ. And that's what we're doing. And God's going to continue to work in us and through us to transform us as we figure that out. So the overwhelming takeaway from being with those guys for a few days is this. You're doing a good work. Press on. Press on. Keep putting one foot in front of the other 
and see this thing happen in the city of Monroe. The second thing I always come away with when I'm around these guys is this concept of family. You know, guys and their wives that we had never met until you know, Thursday morning. It's like you're discovering long-lost brothers and sisters in the faith. And so because of this discovering of family, like I'll never think about Asheville, North Carolina, because I know Brian Robbins now in Asheville, North Carolina, who's leading Asheville United Church and making the gospel known and glorifying Jesus in Asheville. And I'll never think about Fayetteville because of Andrew and, and Ryan. I'll never think about uh, Charlotte and Belmont and Jacksonville and Miami and Johnson City, Tennessee and Nashville because of family that I just got to meet uh, over the last few days. Brothers and sisters I've never known that immediately there's, it's more than just surface acquaintances. There's this deep bond because we share a genuinely real relationship centered in Jesus and we share a common mission to know Jesus and do his work in this world. Guys, and, that, and, and y'all know that forms this deep bond that, that transforms how you live life. And so see, see this emerge from the text this morning in Mark chapter 3. This idea of this shared relationship we have in Jesus and this shared mission that we have that's all about Jesus. So I'm going to read, we're, we're looking at two different sections, verses 20 and 21 and then verses 31 through 35, but I want to read it all just to get the context. Beginning in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons. He cast out demons. And he called to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he truly, or he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we are amazed at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done continually amaze us and captivate us by that. Spirit of God, we ask you to come today and do good, deep, hard, necessary work in us. That we would not be the same people in an hour and a half that we are right now because the Spirit of God has done good stuff. Conviction of sin. Encouragement to those who are down. Comfort to those who are hurting. And challenge to those and all of us who need to be challenged. For your glory, by your power alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Interestingly, this entire section kind of has this Lord, lunatic, liar feel to it. If you're familiar with that paradigm that C.S. Lewis made famous uh, many years ago, Jesus 
is either a liar, he's a deceiver, a con man who's tricking everybody, he's lunatic, he's certifiably crazy as anyone would be who claimed to be God and wasn't God, or he's Lord, he really is who he said he is. Jesus did not come to leave only an option open for him to be a good human teacher. Like he's either these three things, he's not just a good guy. The things he said, the things he did, that option is not available to us. And so after Jesus calls, calls his first 12 followers there, in a section we looked at a few weeks ago, these true followers who see Jesus as Lord, he then contrasts that with these religious leaders who had come down from Jerusalem as Kendrick walked us through this passage last week and had decided after liberation, discussion, thinking, talking, that their final verdict on Jesus is you're an agent of Satan. And Jesus tells them that their hearts are so hard they are beyond hope and Jesus passed, essentially, final judgment on them. You, you can't be forgiven. You've, you've passed this point where you've committed the unforgivable sin. They, they thought Jesus was a liar, a deceiver, a con man. You think you're for God, but you're really working for Satan. Jesus says, no, no, no. You missed it. And now there's judgment for you. Then Jesus will contrast the true followers, the disciples, with those not just who rejected him because they thought he was a liar, but those who were misunderstanding him because they thought he was crazy which was actually his family. Now, this is what's so surprising. We, like, we get the opposition of the religious leaders. They're th- they feel threatened. This guy's taking the affection of the people. He's doing things that we can't do. He's saying things, and he will eventually say things against us and the way we do things. So there's a threat there. But, but his family? This is amazingly shocking. Shocking to the early church who was getting this letter for the first time. You see, Jesus' family would believe, but according to the New Testament, it only comes after the resurrection. Until the resurrection, they were still unsure, which is also true of the disciples. The disciples didn't always get it, right? Until Jesus died, rose from the dead, but nobody was standing outside the tomb waiting for him to rise from the dead, even though he predicted it several times. They still didn't quite understand who he was and what he was doing until he rises from the dead, teaches them for 40 days, descends, ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes fills them so that the teacher, the helper is there to help them make it all sense, to help them see everything and understand everything. Then they can proclaim the risen Christ as they understand him. But his family also didn't get it. You, you have Mary gathered with those in Acts 1 waiting for the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus' half-brother James being mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as believing in Jesus after the resurrection. Then you have that same James and Jesus' other half-brother Jude writing two books of the New Testament. And so there is belief coming, but it doesn't happen now. And we'll talk more next week about why that was the case. But all we know is that for now, they, they don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And so it's shocking to the Christians in Rome who are receiving this letter because all they knew as Christians in Rome is Mary was a part of the church. James and Jew were part of the church. They'd always been believers. So for these believers in Rome to receive this letter, this story from Mark, to go back in time to point out an incident where Mary and his brothers thought Jesus was crazy, thought he was out of his mind. Whoa. Really? This is shocking. To know that Jesus has come to give us a family that's not rooted in the blood and the DNA we share in our physical bodies, but a family that shares in the blood and the life of Jesus. Like this is our shared relationship that Jesus has come to give us. So being Jesus' mother, being his brother, 
not enough. Christians in Rome receiving this letter. Christians in Monroe reading this passage today. Being part of Jesus' biological family was not enough to know Jesus and understand what he's doing. Look again at verse 20 and 21. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus goes back to a home, more than likely Peter's home in Capernaum, that kind of been his home base for ministry. And the crowds again crush him. It's so bad they can't eat. Like, that's bad, right? You can't even put anything in your mouth. Just crushing him. His family comes, and they seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. Literal translation. Like, we might say crazy, lunatic, berserk. It would be a word that you could substitute there. But they thought Jesus had lost his mind. Let's grab him. Let's take him back home. Let's get him some help. Because things are, are getting off the rails. Now this refers to his family. It's very generic. So it could have been his mother, his brothers. It could have been his extended family, cousins, and so forth. And at the end of the chapter, it's much more specific. His mother and brothers come to find him. And again, their biological relationship does not help them understand Jesus and his mission, so they think that they can come and have special access to Jesus, but Jesus puts up his hand and says, no, 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 no. Just because you're my biological family doesn't mean that you get who I am and what I'm here to do. Now Mary comes with the brothers of Jesus. The easiest, most plain understanding of this text is that after Mary conceived Jesus as a virgin through the Holy Spirit, she and Joseph had more children. If you want to say Mary remained a virgin her entire life and never had any more kids, good luck with that. Because the plain understanding of the text is her and Joseph had other children and Jesus had half-brothers. And so his family comes to look for him. The language is very intentional. Notice they are on the outside looking in while the crowd of disciples were sitting close to Jesus. It's very intentional language will mark. Mary and his brothers on the outside His close disciples are on the inside. Outer circle, inner circle. This is a theme that's being developed that will be carried forward into the next chapter. Mary and his brothers are trying to seize him. They're not trying to seize him as they were back in verse 21. But they believe they have special access. And Jesus begins to show there is a relationship with Jesus that supersedes a biological family. This is amazing. Especially when you consider Mary. Young teenage girl visited by an angel of God. You're going to have a child and you're not married. It's going to be the son of God. Like you think that she would have always understood who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. Mary has this child. She's visited in Luke 2 by shepherds worshiping your baby. Like I don't care how special you think your kids are. If shepherds show up, or in our context today, maybe garbage men at the hospital and start worshiping your baby who's just been born, Caitlin, that would be weird. Like, you should just be, what are y'all doing here? Why are you doing this? Like, alarms should be going off. Something strange is up. Y'all are crazy, or something's happened here, right? Uh, Jesus is a weak old baby. They take him to the temple to present the offering they're supposed to present, and Simeon in Luke chapter 2 and Anna, the prophetess, come up and basically say things to Mary that say, he's the one, your baby's the one. We see it. God has spoken to us and revealed it to us. They were later visited by the wise men. He is the one. Worship like a king. They have an episode when Jesus is 12. He stays in the temple because he's about his father's business, amazing the scholars and the teachers. 
That's really all we know about Jesus until he shows up to be baptized by John the Baptist at the age of 30. We assume he grew up and lived a sinless life, but did not teach or do miracles until he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and began his ministry. So while his family certainly had some idea that he was special, you're raising a kid who's sinless, they would not fully understand his ministry and what he came to do, as evidenced by this story, as evidenced by John chapter 2, Jesus' first miracle when Mary wanted him to fix everything. And Jesus had to gently rebuke her. Woman, now is not the time. You even have the episode Luke records in Luke 4 of Jesus going back to his hometown synagogue, essentially claiming to be the Messiah. And the response of the people are, is this just Mary and Joseph's kid? Like We know this kid, a town of about 100 people. We know this kid. Who does he think he is? And, and they want to do harm to him because they just saw a normal person. They didn't see the deity, the divine nature in Jesus. So it seems as though even though Mary was at the cross when Jesus died as a good mother would be, she didn't really believe until Jesus rose from his dead and from the dead. His brothers didn't really believe until he rose from the dead, which makes sense, right? You're not going to believe your sibling is God unless he does something like rise from the dead. It's just not going to happen. Even his disciples struggled to understand his ministry until he ascended and the Holy Spirit came. Because in the Jewish mind, they have no category for a dying and rising Savior. They have no concept of a Messiah that came to suffer and serve. They did not expect this, even his own family. And they had no concept of this new family that Jesus came to create. And so, of course, Mary and his brothers, they began to see him teach and do miracles and crowds flocked to him. They want an audience with him. Of course, he will let us in and give us access, you know? Kind of the head nod, right? And Jesus shuts him down. And he begins to reveal that he's come to create something new, something even better than temporary earthly families. Jesus is beginning to teach what the church is, this eternal spiritual family that even supersedes bloodlines, biological DNA, This is even more shocking when you see the high value the family has in Scripture. Right? God created the family in Adam and Eve before He created the government or school or any other institution. All through the Scriptures, we're taught to have healthy, vibrant relationships in our families. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Children, honor and obey your parents. The book of Proverbs is filled with teachings about how to live out the wisdom of God in our homes so that our homes can be healthy. We defend God's design for the family by teaching what biblical manhood and womanhood and marriage and parenting is. The Bible is full of sound advice and principles. And in our culture, where family definitions and distinctions are being so blurred that the family unit is no longer representing anything that we see in Scripture, where we're headed to a day where any group of people, potentially animals or other objects, could be called a family, like we still need to defend what the family is, what the Bible says a family is. But while the Bible is clear that elevating family to an important God-honoring design is essential, the Bible is also clear that there is a relationship that supersedes and takes priority over the earthly family, and that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we ever have to choose allegiance between Christ and our family, 
we always choose Christ. Always. Most of the time, those can go hand in hand. But if you get to a point where they don't, we choose Christ. Guys, that may not seem like a big deal to us in the Bible Belt, but for the, the, the believers who are reading this, to, to millions of our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church and even today in other countries, that's a huge deal. Like we, Not many of us are going to be kicked out of our families because we stand up and say we're a follower of Jesus. That doesn't happen a lot in our culture. It, I think it's headed to a day where it's going to happen more. But many places today where becoming a Christian is illegal, you can lose jobs, you can be kicked out of your family, thrown into prison, knowing that God has given you a new family that will last forever, that you'll never be kicked out of, it's huge. This is a huge teaching and belief. Jennifer and I, we live in South Louisiana, we um, met lots of people who grew up in Catholicism who came to believe in Jesus Christ, left Catholicism, went to some form of Protestantism, and their families essentially disowned them, treated them like they were no longer part of the family. It was huge for them to see they had a new family, a family that wouldn't do that to them. It means the world to know that, to think about these Christians living in Rome, undergoing persecution, Mark's writing to, torn maybe between allegiance to Christ that will lead to death or allegiance to the family that will allow them to stay alive, to know that even the family of Jesus had to bow before him as Lord and Savior. It wasn't enough to be Jesus' mother, Jesus' brother, to make it into the kingdom of God. It's huge to those today who grow up in homes where your biological family is so broken by sin, to such a degree where you might be the only Christian, where marriages are broken, where abuse happens to know that Jesus came to give us a family that can mend some of those wounds and heal some of those hurts. It's huge to know what Jesus has come to do. Think how strange this was to the first century Jews. In Judaism, you became a Jew when you were born. You're born, you're a Jew. It's bloodlines. It's heritage passed down. Ethnic. And now to have this man coming along claiming to be he was a Jew, Messiah, son of the God. He, he's distancing himself from his own family, showing that they don't even have the right relationship with him to be in his eternal family. Teaching things like he taught to Nicodemus in John 3, unless someone is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Your first birth as a Jew is not enough. You must be born again, born from above, made into a new creature from the inside out, and adopted into God's family through Jesus. Look, many of us born in the Bible Belt with parents and grandparents who attended church, like we should love that heritage. There's no way you should stomp on that or dismiss that. You should love the fact that your parents or grandparents brought you to church, regardless of how unhealthy it is. It's a gift of God's grace. None of us chose to be born in that situation. You could have been born halfway around the world, never heard the gospel, and spent eternity in heaven. So be grateful for that. But that is not enough, right? It's not enough. You can't ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents or grandparents, no matter how faithful they are. Your faith has to become your faith. You can't just adopt their faith. Like That's the biggest fear I have for my own kids. They've been hearing about Jesus and seeing Jesus proclaimed and experiencing that since before they even understood it. 
And one of the prayers that we have for them is that they come to a point where it becomes their faith and not just mom and dad's faith, that they own it. For me, it happened in college. I go to my first semester of college, professors are ridiculing religion, ridiculing denominations, ridiculing all kinds of Jesus, everything. Never had heard that. Nobody did that in the churches I grew up in. And all of a sudden, I'm shaking. Do I really believe this because I believe it or just because I've just adopted what my parents believed? And God graciously came and brought teaching and truth and resources. I could tell you this story one day that gave me everything I needed to know that my faith was secure. Check it, test it, measure it, examine it. It holds up. And it became my faith in college. It has to happen for every single one of us. You're not born a Christian. You're not born into the kingdom of God. You're born into the kingdom of Satan, apart from God's grace. And so there's other ways that this teaching pushes back against some of the family idolatry that exists in our culture. Like in our culture where biological family shows total absolute loyalty to the point where sins are ignored or not confronted because we don't want daddy or mama to look bad. This teaching pushes back against that. Blood is thicker than water. So when push comes to shove, I'm back in my family. Even if they are wrong or sinful because they're family. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in pastoral ministry over the years. People struggling to make a decision that if they knew, they knew making that decision is going to cause either tension in their family or tension in the church. And they'd rather there be tension in the church than there be tension at home with mom and dad. Choose to do what was wrong so that family would be okay with them and upset the church and throw the church into turmoil because blood is thicker than water. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. In fact, as uh, Scott reminded me last night, water is thicker than blood when you call water baptismal water. It's biblically where we should be. Our culture can idolize family in the sense that family is a good excuse to get out of doing things we don't want to do. Right? You don't want to do something? Oh, kid gets sick. Gets sick. Can't do it. And that's real. Like, that happens, right? But to be a family that can't engage in the mission or the work of the church because family stuff is always being scheduled or valued more than, like, it's important to do all of that. I get that. That's life. Our kids play sports. We travel to see family. Family travels to see us. Our biological families are part of the mission field that we're called to engage. But sometimes family stuff provides a convenient excuse to get out of doing church stuff that, frankly, sometimes we don't really want to do. I've seen people avoid short-term mission opportunities because families didn't want to be away from each other for one night. We can't be away from each other. Why? All of life is not going to be like that. Mission opportunities avoided because we need to have family time every single night of the week. Like... So, so hear me, we need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom to find the right balance. The last thing we want anyone here to do is to have an unhealthy marriage or unhealthy parenting because you're neglecting parents, marriage and parenting to go serve other people. One of, the, um, one of the qualifications for being an elder in a church is you are a good husband and a good father. You shepherd your family well. You can't be a pastor in a church Unless you've proven that you do that. So, so don't hear me say that family is not important. It is. But check your heart. Do we sometimes use family as an excuse to not engage in mission? Or serving one another? 
It looks noble because it's family. But God is calling you and wanting you to bring your family with you on mission to do this together. And so see the opportunity that we have as a family of missionary servants in our city. That we can have gospel-centered marriages and parenting that, that show a biological family that is healthy and centered on Jesus that is countercultural in our context. Like that needs to happen. Healthy biological families. And how do we do that? How do we need to ask that question? How do, how do we engage in a marriage that sticks out as being different? Like everybody does date nights now. Everybody does things together as a couple. So it's got to be more than just that. As dads loving their kids. Like we, this generation gets that. 20, 30 years ago, no. Dad spending time with kids, having fun with kids, that wasn't something that a lot of people did or embraced. But, but now it's, it's in secular writing, secular magazines, as well as Christian writing, Christian magazines. It's got to be more than just that. Like, I wish it wasn't. Like, Dad having fun with kids, that's all I want to do is have fun with my kids. Let's just go play and goof off and laugh and run and frolic and all that good stuff. Love some frolic. <laughs> but that's not countercultural. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to do that. Anybody can do that. And so, so maybe it's pressing my kids with the gospel, investing and being intentional with the gospel in my children, calling them to serve and sacrifice for the good of others when my inclination is just comfort them, make them happy, please them. And that's a, that's a longer conversation that we can have, but, but we, so we want that biological, healthy family units that are demonstrating marriage and parenting that are good, that show the difference that Jesus makes. That's biblical. The New Testament teaches that. But we also want to get beyond that. So how do we exist as families that demonstrate the presence and reality of Jesus as, as, a, as a group of biological families that are brothers and sisters in Christ? To get, to get beyond just being a bunch of healthy families, but how do we do this together where we have value in relationship with each other that shows a love for each other that is more than just the fact that we're, we come to the same building on Sundays or we're part of the same missional community. This laying down of our life for each other, because, not because we're related biologically, but because we're, we're related through Jesus spiritually. Like we're serving and sacrificing for others for their good because of the bond that we have in Jesus. And so see the shared relationship with Jesus that we have that's centered on him, but also see the shared mission that we have in verse 34 and 35, knowing Jesus and doing his work. Look at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And that's not a uh, throwaway inclusion when he says sister. Again, Jesus elevated the place and role of women unlike anyone else in his culture that day, of that day. Jesus did not come to suppress women. He says, you're a part of this. Come on. You're included. You're with me. You are my disciples. Jewish rabbis didn't do that. Scandalous to have women disciples. So see what Jesus says about you even as women. A genuine follower, disciple of Christ is one who's been born again that lived to do the will of God. So there will be fruits of obedience, fruits of repentance when we fail to obey, 
fruit of the Holy Spirit in our attitude and motivations, fruits of joy and worship that come from Jesus being our King. This is all part of our shared mission. This is what makes us distinct from other communities. And and understand that in, in this culture today, this idea of community is more than something the church is talking about. Everyone's valuing community. Everyone longs to have community. Everyone is seeking and searching for community. And there are organizations in our church that are providing community that is good. That is good for people. And people are enjoying that and finding health and wholeness in that. And it has nothing to do with Jesus and the gospel. Nothing. Like I, I would go to a hospice patient's houses and visit with their family. And they won't be a part of a local church. But they will have so many people in their community. Neighbors, friends, family. Loving on them. Serving them. Like... I want to say, you've got everything but Jesus. It's that good and healthy. And all their motivations may be wrong. It might be self-glory. It might be, I'll scratch you back, your back, you scratch my back. It might be all wrong motivations, but they are experiencing community in a beautiful way that a lot of churches could learn from, including our church. Everyone's apart. No one is pushed away. No one's ostracized. Everyone's included. Like why do we still have people for a church our size who come on Sunday mornings and they aren't engaged in relationship? There aren't people pursuing them, talking to them, loving them. Why does that still happen here? Why do we come and just seek comfort, talk to the same people we always talk to? Why are we looking around at people who aren't being engaged and loved and served well? Nobody should leave a Sunday worship gathering at the Crossing Church and not feel loved. Like, no, we should be able to do this really well. We talk about it all the time. Nobody should come worship and go home and be like, I'm not known. I'm not loved. Guys, open our eyes. Look around. Don't fall into the rut. We're two years old. We already have ruts. The ruts of the same people, the same conversations, the same places you sit, the same things you talk about. Let's see each other as family and love each other as family. This is part of the mission that we share. Like we've got to be a community that is unconditionally loving one another, serving one another. But then it's got Jesus at the center of it. Because people want to know, why do you love these people? Why are you with these people? It's because of Jesus. He's the bond that, that draws us together, that ties us together, that, love, that gives us that love for each other. Look how D.A. Carson puts it. D.A. Carson said this, The church itself is not made up of natural friends. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe Him a common allegiance. In light of this fact, in light of the fact that they have been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says. He commands them to love one another. And in this light, they are, we are, a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake have every reason not to be family. But we are because of Jesus. And we love one another because of Jesus. 
So this morning, I, w- I want to do something. I want to read some passages that speak to that. And I may prompt some of your thoughts. But I want to read some passages trusting the Spirit to work through the Word. Because that's how God changes people. The Spirit and the Word. And I intentionally did not put them on the screen. I intentionally am not giving you references because I don't want you looking at words. I want you, I don't want you looking at me. I want you in your mind and your heart to be looking at people. I want you to see, see people. To see each other. I even glance around the room. Think about people who are part of the crossing who aren't here. Have their faces, their lives in your mind as I read these passages about who we are created and called to be as the crossing church family. And do some self-assessment. Are these things showing up in your life? Are you experiencing this thing, these things? Hear and see this morning the family that Jesus has created us to be and how he intends us to live. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How are you doing at bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity and the bonds of peace that we have? Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through In this it's love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love him. Or rather, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples.
if you have love for one another. So how did the Spirit speak to you through those passages? Are there relationships in the crossing family that aren't experiencing that? That aren't demonstrating those qualities? Is there someone that you need to seek out for forgiveness and reconciliation? Guys, realize that Jesus left his Father in heaven, was sent by his Father in heaven to come and experience a broken family. At some point in his life, Jesus lost his earthly father. Joseph died. On the cross, his father in heaven forsook him, turned his back for the first time ever. His own family thought he was nuts and didn't get him or his ministry. And he endured all of that to bring us into a family where we would never be forsaken, never abandoned, never be treated as we treat Jesus all the time. And to always know the love of a perfect father. Brothers and sisters, as we strive to be healthy in a faithful church that is also fruitful in our city, we will be fruitful and faithful, not because we have the most attractive building or the most impressive singing or musical ability, the most talent in the city. We have a lot of talent. We're not trying to have the most talent. Not because we have the, the best preaching, the, the most gifted communicators of the gospel. We will be faithful and fruitful in our city because we can love like nobody else. We can love and be family like nobody else because that's what the Spirit has come to do in us. And so let's go there with each other because Jesus was willing and did go there for us, loving us fully, completely while we were his enemies so that we could become his brothers and sisters, so that we could be adopted into this new family, so that we would know him and do his work because of Jesus, we have a shared relationship. Him. That makes us family forever. If you don't like somebody now, you better get over it. Because you're going to be with them forever. So be reconciled. Forgive. Let love cover a multitude of sins. And let's go be the family of servant missionaries that he has made us to be. Father, so grateful so grateful that you have come to do this to make possible something that only you can make possible a bunch of people from different places with different backgrounds and different likes and dislikes and you're joining us together to become one so that with one voice and one mind and one heart we are proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light we are demonstrating to the city the beauty of Jesus and his gospel where we fail to love one another. Father, bring conviction, repentance, and restoration. Where we struggle, Father, bring strength. Bring your spirit to enable us to do the hard things. Most of all, help us to love one another so that this city would know 
we are your disciples. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.